we're going to be talking about antibiotics in dentistry, and basically what we'd like to do is kind of run through a little microbiology so there's a little underlying understanding, uh, then the antibiotics that are available, and then if we have time at the end, we can talk about uh, prophylaxis and some other uh, controversies such as antibiotic resistance. Uh, my name is Joel Michelson. I'm an oral surgeon. I practice in southeastern Minnesota. I'm in a group practice. We have five offices. Uh, I work primarily at two of them in Rochester and in Red Wing. Uh, compete with the Mayo Clinic. I'm not affiliated with the Mayo Clinic directly, but I actually have privileges at two of their uh, satellite hospitals. So, uh, My avocation is to go to Guinea every year. Uh, I'm on the board of a hospital there uh, called Combashan Evangelical Hospital. We're located in Mamu. Uh, The hot zone for Ebola is here. Uh, We so far have only had one case of Ebola at our hospital, so uh, it will probably change. We're looking at, the UN is looking at our hospital to use as a training center in case uh, things continue to spiral out of control. Um, But... When you go to Guinea, this is our hospital, uh, you're going to be confronted with patients that have abscesses. Uh, Obviously, uh, we want to know how we can treat these. Uh, How many work in a limited resource situation? Okay, so I'm going to try and gear it a little bit towards that. Mostly what I say, the good news is that the, the, the antibiotics that we use are the ones that you're probably able to get a hold of, but we will cover what also is available uh, as far as newer antibiotics that are fairly expensive and probably not available in your situations. Um, but we'll review the mu- basic microbiology, uh, the appropriate antibiotics uh, based on the microbiology, and then uh, misuse and uh, prophylaxis. How many of you know what this is? Yeah. Ludwig's angina. Uh, this used to be uh, uniformly fatal uh, before the antibiotic era at the turn of the century. Uh, basically, abscess of the submental, sublingual, and submandibular spaces. The airway shuts off. It spreads down the mediastinum. Uh, so you can see, unless you provide an airway, uh, patients don't do real well. Now it's, it's, it's relatively curable. It still has about a 20% fatality rate, depending on how soon it's caught. Uh, and that all starts with the dental alveolar abscess. Uh, abscesses are the, were the fifth leading cause of death in uh, English records in the 1600s. In the 20th century, the mortality rate from dental infections was about 10 to 40 percent. Not all Ludwig's, but uh, abscesses that spread or became septic or whatever. Uh, In the U.S., acute dental infections account for approximately 1 in 2,600 hospital admissions. Uh, Periapical abscesses account for 50 percent of dental-related ER visits in the United States. I found that pretty interesting. And then 12% of antibiotics in outpatient settings are given for odontogenic uh, infections. So you can see it's a, it's a big problem, and it's something that we all have, are very familiar with and we all probably treat routinely. Uh, uh, but the pathogens that we're dealing with, we need to figure out what kind they are, what uh, or organisms are involved, and that will guide our antibiotic choice. So we can uh, classify them by gram-positive, uh, mixed infections, aerobes, facultative, or anaerobes. Uh, the normal oral cavity organisms, there are more than 700 species crawling around in your mouth at any one time. Uh, they're aerobic as well as anaerobic. Uh, the anaerobic are 10 to 100 times more common. And then there are also uh, outliers like spirochetes, candida, and, and various viruses. Uh, 
Abscesses are polymicrobial infections. It's usually not a single organism. Uh, mostly facultative anaerobes such as strep viridens and strep anginosis groups. And then the strict anaerobes such as Provitella, Fusobacterium, and then uh, as it progresses, anaerobes predominate. Uh, probably the most important thing is, is to establish uh, surgical drainage. Uh, we've got to get the pus out, eliminate the source of the infection, either extract the tooth or do a root canal. And then the antibiotics are more of an adjunct to limit the spread of the infection. Uh, or if there's an immune-compromised patient, then it's something that we want to help boost their immune system. And uh, just as a, an aside, all, all of the text from these slides is uh, available online. I, I put the PowerPoint up there. It doesn't have the pictures, but it has all the text. So if you want to, you don't have to scribble down all the, the information. It'll all be there where it already is. A um, couple of recent changes in microbiology, uh, changes in the way we identify pathogens, uh, changes in nomenclature, and then increased understanding of bacterial interactions. And I kind of added this down, uh, really, uh, there's a lot more uh, as far as what's going on now with uh, gene sequencing and so forth to identify bacteria, but that would be a lecture in itself. But uh, the first classification that we use is to classify the bacteria by the phenotype. Uh, we're all familiar with uh, cocci and uh, bacillus. These are the two main phenotypes that we deal with in the oral cavity. And the way we identify them is usually by doing a gram stain. Uh, if you remember back to your microbiology, uh, applying two different stains, depending on the cell wall, it'll either stain pink or uh, dark blue. Or, and I'm colorblind, so this is always lost on me. But uh, it's accurate for early diagnosis and treatment. At least it gives you an idea of what kind of organisms you're dealing with. And it's a practical guide to antibiotic therapy because it's inexpensive and it's available. So even in a remote location, you can probably have your lab do this if, if you want. Uh, anaerobic versus aerobic. Uh, we remember aerobic bacteria require oxygen. Then there are microaerophilic bacteria that require lower concentrations. Facultative anaerobes can tolerate oxygen but grow better in anaerobic environment. And then uh, strict anaerobes require the absence of oxygen. So those are basically how we divide up the, the organisms that we're dealing with. Um, more recently, we were able to do genotypic bacterial identification, uh, gene sequencing, doing chain reaction, uh, DNA polymerases. Uh, and they're actually going to be helpful in the future. It's, it's an evolving uh, industry right now. 60% of the oral flora are uncultivatable. So we can't culture these organisms, but we can identify them by doing gene sequencing. Uh, microbiological technique allows species identification by detection of the genes. Uh, usually they use the 16S RNA or RDNA gene sequencing with cloning. And then there's also a different technique using proportionate amplification uh, called polymerase chain reaction. Uh, and you can get the results within a day. So it, it's a very quick regular culture. It takes two to three days. Uh, and it shows a higher prevalence of fastidious organisms such as treponema that we didn't realize were there using our, our standard culture techniques. But unfortunately, it doesn't offer any information on antibiotic susceptibility. So if you do a culture insensitivity, you're going to get more practical clinical, clinical data than you would uh, by doing gene sequencing. So let's talk a little bit about culture as a sensitivity. Uh, it's something, how many of you take cultures routinely? Okay, you're probably in a hospital setting then. Or? Not a dentist. Oh, okay. 
Okay, well, for those that are not dentists, you probably have to do it because you, you do. For den- dentists, uh, we'll talk about why. We usually don't routinely culture uh, infections, and we'll talk about which ones we should. Uh, usually takes 24 to 48 hours to obtain initial results, uh, and more time is required if they're anaerobes or rare bacteria. Uh, the two most common methods are the diffusion plates or tube dilution uh, and uh, when are they necessary? If you have a serious infection that's, uh, you know, life-threatening, the airways involved, the patient's septic, uh, you know, all the red flags, high temperature, et cetera. Infections that persist or recur in spite of treatment, previous multiple antibiotic treatment, uh, immunocompromised patients, and then osteomyelitis, and then the last one, if you suspect actinomycosis. So we don't routinely culture uh, garden variety abscesses, dental alveolar abscesses, uh, but if it's spreading submandibularly, if you think there's airway involvement, uh, when you uh, do your IND, it's a good idea to get a, a culture. A little bit about actinomycosis. This is a patient. I, I used to go to Kenya every year and do a, a dental clinic for a couple of weeks and train a nurse how to do extractions. And uh, this gentleman came in. We Put, uh, took out the tooth, put him on antibiotics. He had this uh, draining abscess and uh, came back a year later, and he shows up again, and he looks just the same. So uh, if you see that, what, what comes to your mind right away? No? Close, though. So. That, that is the other differential. Uh, that would be an actinomycosis, because actinomycoses are very uh, hard to wipe out. They're, they're aerobic organisms. They hang out deep in the tissue, so you have to use long-term antibiotics for probably three to four months. And, you know, we put them on 10 days' worth of antibiotics. So a year later, he still was infected. And that's where a culture would come in handy because you can see the, if you all remember, the sulfur granules and all that. Anyway, cultures and sensitivity, uh, obviously you need a specimen. Uh, and there's different ways to obtain these. You can do swabs, you can do aspirates, uh, you can do biopsies, or you can use secretions. Uh, the culturettes are the, the standard. Uh, make sure your culturettes are up to date. They expire fairly rapidly. Their shelf life is less than a year. So we don't routinely keep these in our office because we never culture in our office usually, just in the hospital. Uh, syringe aspiration is actually better because then you're not introducing air, so you're more likely to get anaerobic uh, organisms, and then uh, you take your specimens, you gr- grow them on auger dishes, and then you do your sensitivity testing by putting antibiotics uh, to see which antibiotics are going to uh, be able to fight the infection. The problem is, again, delayed results. It takes 24 to 48 hours. If you do an IND, uh, take the tooth out, do the root canal, whatever, uh, you know, the patient's going to be better within a day or two. So by the time you get your culture back, uh, it's, it's a moot point. Okay, let's talk about normal oroflora. If you do a culture and sensitivity, 98% of the time they're going to send back a, a slip that says normal oroflora. So that's not really going to be too helpful anyway. So why spend all that money and time doing something that's not going to be beneficial? Uh, but what are we talking about when we're talking about normal oroflora? Uh, mainly the strep viridens group. Uh, they're aerobic streptococci. Uh, there's a whole list of them. The strep milleri group. And then uh, oral, anti- oral uh, anaerobic streptococci. And the nomenclature here has changed three times in the last 20 years. So if you get confused, that's, that's to be expected. But these used to be peptococcus, then they were peptostreptococcus, and now they're anaerococcus. Uh, 
And then the bacteroids, uh, the Prevotella species, and uh, Porphyrmonas. And those are the main, main players in most of the infections. Uh, odontogenic infections, there are more than uh, 700 species involved, and about 50% can't be cultured, so that's where the gene sequencing might be helpful. Um, there are mixed anaerobic and aerobic infections. Occasionally, you'll have a, an aerobic infection, but that's less than uh, 7%. Mixed infections predominate, and anaerobic infections only about 33%. Uh, the average isolate of bacteria doing cultures are about four different types of organisms. And uh, gram-positive aerobic and facultative streptococci are the common pathogen and most numerous. Uh, they produce the hyaluronidase and streptokinase, which allow that bacteria to invade the tissue. The major pathogens of oral infection and early infections, it's the strep group. In mature infections, it's the strep viridens group, uh, the peptostreptococcus, and the Prevotella species with fusobacterium coming in later. Uh, so the progression uh, is initiated by the aerobic uh, organisms. They gain entrance to the t tissue. Uh, they cause the cellulitis. Uh, that causes hypoxia and acidosis, and that produces a favorable environment for the anaerobes to come and colonize. Uh, the anaerobes follow. They cause tissue destruction, which creates pus, which is, you know, white cells and bacteria both mixed. Uh, and then they also, the anaerobes usually produce enzymes, which destroy the antibiotics. So there's a symbiotic relationship between the organisms, and that leads to a serious infection. And uh, this is just a little kind of a progression. You start with gram-positive, you go to gram-negative, you go from cocci and rods to rods and spirochetes, facultative to anaerobic organisms. And this, this is just a progression of uh, dental caries, which is uh, the largest untreated disease in, in the world. Uh, we have plaque-free tooth surface. Uh, pit and fissures are colonized by uh, strep mutans. Uh, leads eventually to endodontic infection and the abscess. And then periodontal infections we're not going to talk about very much, but there's a progression there as far as the organisms as well. And those are mostly anaerobic organisms. Uh, interactions. Uh, there are different interactions. Usually it's a combination of uh, streptococci and anaerobes. Uh, anaerobic bacteria depend on the other organisms, uh, and they, as the uh, infection matures, it becomes more and more anaerobic. Uh, and again, they release penicillinase. They also interfere with opsonization, which is uh, how the antibodies identify the bacteria, so they'll actually block that process. So what do we do with the infections? Uh, this is a stamp from 1999 that says antibiotics save lives. And uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, before 1930, if you had a severe infection, it was, it was iffy if you were going to make it. Uh, what types of antibiotics should we use? Narrow spectrum, broad spectrum, bacteriostatic, bactericidal, new designer antibiotics? Uh, you know, those are the questions we want to answer. Uh, the ideal antibiotic would have a rapid onset of action, would be specific for the organism that we're dealing with, uh, would not disturb non-pathogens, would have no side effects, and would be inexpensive. And fortunately, uh, there, there is an antibiotic that, that almost meets most of those. So choosing the right antibiotic, uh, first of all, we have to decide if it's indicated. Uh, and in dentistry, we use empirical therapy. We know that most of these infections are going to be the organisms that we mentioned above. Uh, we want narrow spectrum that focuses on those organisms and doesn't wipe out uh, the healthy commensal organisms that are in our gut, for example. So if you can narrow the spectrum down, that helps. 
Uh, we want to avoid toxicity and side effects. Oops, how did I get to the end? <laughs> Excuse me. Happens when you push the wrong button. Any questions while I reload here so far? And anytime if uh, you have a question, feel free to chime in. Okay. When don't we use antibiotics? We don't need them for... <laughs> Did it again. I left my mouse in the hotel room. That's why I'm using this keypad. But Okay. We don't need them for chronic localized abscesses. Uh, we don't need them for uh, minor vestibular abscesses if it's just swelling out lateral to the tooth. Uh, we don't need it for dry socket. That's not really even an infection. And it's not going to work for sterilizing a root canal because the, the bacteria are in the canal, not in the tissue where the antibiotics are going to be working anyway. And for mild pericoronitis, we don't need it other than uh, using a topical agent like Paradex. Uh, we do need systemic antibiotics for rapidly progressing infections. Uh, if a patient comes in, I saw him yesterday, and he comes in the next day and he's swollen out to here. That's obviously a bad sign. Um, if there's diffuse involvement, it, it, this is cellulitis that feels like it's just about everywhere. Uh, if you have a compromised host, it would be people that are diabetic, uh, HIV, uh, chemotherapy, all those, those people. Uh, it's invading uh, the fascial spaces, spreading. If you have osteomyelitis uh, or if you have a severe pericoronitis, which is what this is, this is just a pericoronitis a third molar impacted with the gum flap uh, infected. And you can see that they're having problems opening, et cetera. Okay, basic antibiotic principles. Uh, you want to hit the bacteria hard, fast, and early. Use a loading dose. So if you're going to give them 500 milligrams of penicillin, start with 1,000 milligrams to, to get them up to a high blood level quickly. Uh, you want to be using the right drug, and we talked about culturing and sensitivity. Uh, use the right dose. Uh, you want to go four to five times the mean inhibitory concentration for peak plasma level, and you can calculate all that, but that's, that's done by the drug companies. Just read their drug insert, and it'll tell you what, what's there. Uh, use the correct dosing schedule so that you don't have uh, peaks and valleys. And then use for the correct duration. Uh, continue the therapy for two to day, three days after the resolution of the infection. Uh, what antibiotics do we have available? And we're not going to cover major groups like the immunoglycosides or uh, the uh, sulfonamides because they're not useful for the organisms that we deal with. So we're not even going to talk about them other than peripherally. Uh, and it hel it's helpful to know where the bacteria uh, are being attacked with uh, beta-lactamases are the main ones that we use, the penicillins. Uh, it affects the cell walls. Uh, Quinolones affect DNA gyrase, so they prevent the DNA from being replicated, which kills the cells. Uh, and then the macrolides, uh, clindamycin, attack the ribosomes. And that affects protein synthesis. So the beta-lactams, you all remember the beta-lactam ring, penicillin uh, is the main. Uh, it imitates the alanine-alanine uh, 
peptide, which is part of the cell wall, replaces it in the cell wall so that the cell wall, when it's formed, uh, breaks down and the, the bacteria dies. Uh, so penicillins are still the empiric drug of choice for outpatient odontogenic infections because of their effectiveness, their side effect profile, uh, cost, and those are the three main things that make it useful in, in uh, limited resource situations as well. Uh, there are five different groups of penicillins, the naturally occurring penicillins. Uh, remember, uh, they come from funguses. Uh, first generation are modified to uh, prevent uh, or make them more stable. Second generations uh, make them easily absorbed. And then third and fourth generations uh, try and deal with the uh, resistance that develops due to uh, Yes, go ahead. How would you know which one is the one that's prescribed for treatment? We'll get to that. Yep, just to say. Anyway, uh, the main problem with penicillins is their allergic reaction. Um, and basically, most of the time, it's just a mild skin rash. You treat it with Benadryl. Uh, tell them not to take penicillin again so they don't get an anaphylaxis. Uh, about 3 to 5%, 10% uh, of previously taken. Uh, anaphylaxis is, is fairly rare, but 10% of the reactions are fatal, so that, that's not a good thing. Uh, and surprisingly, 75% of the fatal anaphylactic reactions occur in the United States. Uh, only 70% of the deaths had a history of taking penicillin, so you could have somebody that's never been exposed to penicillin, and uh, they can still have an anaphylactic reaction. And most of the deaths are due to IV administration, which is a good thing because we usually give the oral form. And usually that will be a milder reaction. Other adverse effects, uh, you get super infections with candida, uh, antibiotic-associated colitis. You know, clindamycin has a bad rap, but actually more people get uh, ACC for, AAC from uh, the penicillins. Uh, blood dyscrasias can cause Stevens-Johnson syndrome, those types of things. Interstitial nephritis, it can affect the kidneys. Uh, anyway, we'll talk a little bit about the natural penicillins, PEN-V and PEN-G. Uh, they're both very inexpensive. PEN-G is the IV form. Uh, PEN-VK is the oral form. Uh, effective against all the, the organisms that we're most worried about. Uh, they're excreted by the kidneys. Uh, but uh, there's a big resistance uh, with staph and enteric species. And, but since we're not dealing with those primarily, that's not a concern. So PEN-VK, it's potassium salt, water-soluble, um, more resistant to gastric acid than PEN-G. Uh, the dosage, we all know, 500 milligrams four times a day. And then uh, PEN-G, uh, or you can do uh, 240 million units in 24 hours IV for severe infection. The semi-synthetic synthetic penicillins are bactericidal, <coughs> excuse me, and they inhibit cell wall synthesis. Uh, and that's procaine penicillin. G, uh, that can be injected uh, intramuscularly as well. And uh, then the, all the ones that were designed to be penicillinase resistant. Uh, and then the amino penicillins are also semi-synthetic. Uh, they have extended spectrums. They're more costly, so why use them if you have penicillin or amoxicillin? Uh, and that brings us to amoxicillin, which is probably the, the one that I use, you know, 98% of the time. It's stable in gastric acid. It uh, does not penetrate CFF. So if I had somebody who thought they were going to get a brain abscess, I wouldn't use it, but that's not going to happen very often. Uh, they're excreted unchanged. Uh, they're less effective 
against oral streptin 10V and more common cause of uh, the most common cause of antibiotic associated colitis. So if you look at all the cases of colitis, uh, amoxicillin is, is the number one cause. But if you look at the number of prescriptions for antibiotics, you know, amoxicillin is also number one. So uh, the percentage is probably about the same or maybe even less than with uh, clindamycin. And then it does cause diarrhea in about 10% of patients. Uh, it's broader spectrum. It covers gram-positive and gram-negative organisms. Uh, and the dose I use is 500 milligrams three times a day. Unless I have somebody that I don't think is going to be compliant with that, I can have them take it twice a day. You can give them a bigger ta uh, tablet. Uh, it costs a little bit more. And then uh, in children, you have to adjust the dose to body weight. But that brings us to uh, antibiotic resistance. Uh, the penicillins are all uh, beta-lactime rings. Uh, bacteria figured out how to break down the lactin ring. Uh, so we have beta-lactamase inhibitors. And uh, beta-lactamase is a bacterial enzyme that hydrolyzes the ring. Uh, and clavulanic acid is the most uh, commonly used one. It inhibits the plasmid and chromosomal-mediated beta-lactamases. Uh, Solbactam is also uh, good, and it uh, covers the same spectrum. And then tazobactam uh, is uh, a newer one that uh, is also quite expensive at this point. So uh, not supposed to use brand names, but augmentin or amoxicillin clavulanate is probably the main one. that When I see patients referred to the office from the ER, they routinely use augmentin rather than just amoxicillin. I guess they have a bigger budget than we do. But <laughs> Uh, the dose is the same as amoxicillin. You don't have to increase the clavulanate dose, though, as you increase the dose of the amoxicillin because it doesn't uh, in improve the beta-lactam uh, activity. Uh, indications, uh, if you have organisms that are going to produce beta-lactamase, uh, the adult dose 500 to 875 milligrams. Uh, Piperacillin tazobactam is fourth generation. It's also very effective. It's more extended spectrum, uh, covers uh, a broad variety of species, excellent against anaerobes. Uh, it penetrates bone, so it's good for osteomyelitis, good for intra-abdominal, and it's an alternative for severe head and neck infections. Again, probably something you're not going to have in a, a limited resource situation because uh, it is very expensive. The carbapenems are beta-lactam antibiotics with a wide spectrum of coverage, and uh, they're more resistant to beta-lactamases. Uh, they cover gram-positive, gram-negative, and anaerobes, which is, again, what we're looking at. Uh, not first-line uh, therapy, but you can, they can, can be considered for multi-space infections, again, because of the cost. Uh, uh, imipenem is the main one, and that one is a very good IV medication to use uh, in a hospital setting. Uh, and then there are uh, three or four other ones. Uh, now we'll move on to the cephalosporins, and we'll kind of just, at the end, I'm going to just hit one cephalosporin in each group, uh, so I'm not going to really cover each one individually, but uh, they're useful for mild penicillin allergies. There's about a 10% react, cross-reactivity. Uh, they're used for prophylaxis and cardiovascular and orthopedic surgery. We use it when we do our orthognathic surgery cases as a, as a pre-med or a, a prophylactic med. Uh, as you progress through the generations, you lose uh, gram-positive efficacy, but you increase gram-negative efficacy, and the toxicity is similar to penicillin. So first generations are best against staph and strep. Uh, 
and then there are parental and oral forms. Second generation, better only against some anaerobes and gram-positive rods. And then third generation, uh, broader spectrum yet, and uh, really usually not beneficial for dentistry, and again, they're more costly. Uh, if you're going to use the first generation uh, cephalosporin, cephalexin is uh, usually the drug of choice. It's effective for the dr bugs that we're worried about. Uh, it does have, uh, doesn't cover enteric flora or, or uh, Bacteroides flagellus, uh, but the dosage is very similar to penicillin, uh, and it works well in children as well. Cephalochlor is good second generation cephalosporin if you need to use one. That's in a, but it is expensive, uh, but it does cover most of the organisms. Uh, and the, the dosage is 250 to 500 milligrams three times a day. And then ceftrioxone, uh, we use, it's IV only, but it is a good one. If you have somebody that's acutely infected, uh, uh, we'll send them to the ER and have them uh, run an IV and, and have them uh, use that. It's effective for all of the organisms we deal with. Uh, and it, it does have a good uh, profile as far as what we're dealing with. Moving on to protein synthesis inhibitors, uh, clindamycin it inhibits protein synthesis at the 50S subunit. Uh, it's static in low concentrations, and it's bactericidal in high concentrations. So if you're going to prescribe uh, clindamycin, go 300 milligrams, not 150, because uh, you're going to actually have more risk of a colitis with 150 milligram dose, and you're not going to be... Uh, doing a, a, a service to your patients by uh, lowering, you know, you're going to have more organisms sitting around uh, becoming resistant. Uh, it's metabolized in the liver. Uh, it has superior action against anaerobes, especially bacteroides, so it's more effective than uh, the penicillins against anaerobes. Uh, so it's considered for anaerobic infections if your patient's allergic to penicillin. But again, uh, amoxicillin would be the first line. Uh, it does penetrate bone well, so it's good for um, osteomyelitis as well. And again, it covers the organisms that we're interested in. Uh, it can be used in pregnancy. Uh, it's excreted unchanged in the kidneys, mostly uh, as a metabolite. Uh, shouldn't be used if you have a hypersensitivity or if, if there is a history of uh, bowel disease or colitis, then you want to avoid it. And uh, used with caution in renal and hepatic dysfunctions, asthma, newborns, and geriatric patients. And again, the dose we usually use is 300 milligrams uh, four times a day. Uh, protein synthesis inhibitors, the macrolides, the erythromycin is uh, the main one that we remember. And we'll go through it real fast because erythromycin is really, how many of you use erythromycin routinely now? And that's because most of the organisms we deal with are becoming uh, very resistant to it. So it, it's a good one to keep in mind, especially in a limited resource situation, because you, it is inexpensive. And in those situations, you may have less drug resistance because of uh, the profile of the bacteria in your, your population. So you it can use it. It does, does work in certain situations. But uh, the other problem with it is it's bacteriostatic. It's not bactericidal. Uh, but it is useful if people are allergic to uh, the penicillins. Uh, it does cause high incidence of gastric irritation, and uh, there's a high incidence of resistance like we were mentioning. Uh, it has many drug interactions, which is another bad thing. Uh, and the uh, dosage is usually 500 milligrams uh, four times a day. 
the new designer erythromycins, azithromycin, clarithromycin, are a little bit more useful. They're also more expensive, again. Uh, but they are bactericidal or static, depending on, again, the, the tissue concentration. Uh, but they do cover the, the same uh, organisms that we're, we're worried about. Uh, most of the streps and staph have developed some resistance, uh, as well as some of the oral anaerobes. And then there are many drug interactions, again, because it's the cytochrome P450 system. But they can be used in pregnancy as well. Uh, they're broader spectrum. They're expensive. Uh, they have fewer drug interactions than uh, regular erythromycin. So clarithromycin, 500 milligrams BID, uh, or azithromycin, which is the one that I would use if I was going to use one, because it's an easy uh, prescription. You write dose pack. They take two the first day, and then they take 500 milligrams for the next three days. It stays around. Uh, it's not excreted very quickly, so they actually have uh, effect of blood level for uh, almost a week after they discontinue the antibiotic. And then uh, tetracyclines we'll move on to. Uh, they're bacteriostatic. Uh, again, we don't use them much other than in peripheral situations where we're uh, using them topically. Poor absorption with food, many resistant strains. Uh, Part of that is, I, like, I had acne when I was in high school. My uh, dermatologist put me on tetracycline, and, you know, there were millions of kids like me. <laughs> so uh, there was a high resistance buildup. Uh, if you're going to use one, doxycycline is the best. It has the best spectrum, uh, but there is widespread cross-resistance. It does cause photosensitivity as well. Uh, DNA gyrase inhibitors, uh, fluoroquinolones, uh, these are not practical most of the time, but uh, some of the newer agents, which, again, are going to be expensive, are very effective against the, the organisms that we're, we deal with. They're bacterial-sidal. They have a broad spectrum. Uh, so they have many indications for medical colleagues uh, and also with a uh, combination with clindamycin for uh, serious anaerobic uh, infections. Um, avoid use in children in pregnancy. And this is important because they do affect cartilage, uh, I just was reading an article. My brother-in-law had popped his Achilles tendon, and so I sent him an article about a 98-year-old gentleman that popped both of his Achilles tendons, became depressed, and died because he was taking uh, ciprofloxacin for a mild infection. Uh, but it does cause chondrotoxicity, so uh, if the risk outweighs the benefit, uh, don't use them. Uh, they do use them for kids with cystic fibrosis, but otherwise I would not uh, use it at all. Uh, covers staph. Uh, but it's poor for aerobic streps, so uh, unless you're using levofloxacin or lovinox, that, that would be the only one of the category that I would use. Uh, anaerobic activity, poor to fair, but again, uh, moxifloxacin and ciprofloxacin do cover it. Oh, do it again. I've got to put a piece of tape over that button. <laughs> Any questions? where we are now. Okay, ciprofloxacin, uh, we all carry that with us when we go overseas because it works great for uh, community-acquired uh, gastrointestinal pro problems. Uh, it does have a lot of drug interactions, uh, and it's not really good for the oral organisms, but it, if, as a last-ditch uh, antibiotic, it's not, not bad. Moxifloxacin, however, is, is a good drug for what we do 
and it has good bactericidal activity against gram-positive and gram-negative aerobes and anaerobes. It's comparable to uh, amoxicillin clavulanate and clindamycin for oral infections. Uh, it causes actually a faster clinical resolution than clindamycin, and it has better tissue penetration. And probably its biggest advantage, it's a once-daily dosing. So people are going to be very compliant with it. So it's a good alternative in treatment failure or if you have people that are hypersensitive to both clindamycin and penicillin. Uh, may be effective for oral therapy for osteomyelitis, uh, and it has a broader spectrum as well. Side effects, it can uh, interact with quinidine, procanamide, and amurodrone. Uh, shouldn't be used in children, again, the uh, effect on the cartilage, uh, arthritis. Uh, it does cause photosensitivity, and it can cause peripheral neuropathy and increase uh, hyperglycemia, or uh, cause hypoglycemia, so use with caution in diabetics. Uh, another newer one, acetafloxacin, uh, has a similar range and is also very good. Uh, it's extremely expensive. <laughs> Uh, and it's not available yet in the United States. So, But you've heard the name now. You know, in five years when FDA approves it, we'll, we'll probably use it. Uh, but it is very effective for odontogenic infections. And then finally, metronidazole. Uh, it's bactericidal. Uh, it's mainly uh, used for anaerobes. Uh, downside, it has a metallic taste, and it also uh, interacts with alcohol to make people very sick. So... It's a good one to use if you want to get somebody off of alcohol. <laughs> uh, for not for use in pregnancy, especially first trimester. Uh, but it covers obligate anaerobes only. Uh, and the reason I mention it is it's excellent in com combination with penicillin. If I have somebody, I put them on amoxicillin or penicillin, and it, they come back a couple days later and they're not doing better, uh, I'll put them on, add the metronidazole to it. It's put it on uh, the same dosage schedule and they'll usually respond pretty quickly. Uh, you can do 500 milligrams QID, so it's the same as uh, penicillin. And uh, that covers most of the antibiotics that uh, are of interest. Uh, the other concerns, uh, cost. If you look at the cost for a 10-day therapy, you know, penicillin, it's $6. Ciprofloxacin, uh, it's almost $80. Uh, so that that's a big factor, especially uh, in these days of being cost-conscious. Cost um, now we're going to move on. We've got about five minutes, so let's talk a little bit about antibiotic failure. Um, if your antibiotics aren't working, you haven't gotten rid of the source of the infection is probably the main thing. Um, or you may have depressed host defenses, or there may be a foreign body that hasn't been removed. Or you may have a problem with antibiotic compliance, patient noncompliance, uh, drug not reaching the site, drug dose too low, uh, and then or the wrong diagnosis. So you want to load them up, uh, you want to give them adequate dose, and you want to make sure that they're actually taking it. Uh, and again, resistance is the biggest concern that we have. Uh, if people don't take it on a regular schedule or they take it ineffectively, it actually increases uh, the, the problem with antibiotic resistance. Uh, and we only have about five minutes left. Uh, do we want to stop here? Uh, for discussion. Or I've got a little bit on uh, antibiotic resistance. I have a whole lot on prophylaxis, but we probably won't have time to cover that effectively. Yeah. Uh, understanding is, uh, I'm, I'm a physician. My understanding is that with 
systems, at least in hospitals, to yeah. prevent resistance. So how would you go about using that? Like if you, would you say it's, it's good, but if you don't have that as an option? Yeah, um, that's a good point. And, you know, when we talk about infections, if you're in a hospital uh, situation with serious infections, uh, it's always good to get an ID consult anyway. Um, for outpatient, you probably would have to uh, get an uh, uh, approval from uh, – if, if it's not if, – if you're in a hospital, you definitely have to get an ID approval. Um, from a pharmacy, if you wrote a prescription for moxifloxacin, the pharmacist would probably call you and ask you what you're using it for, and, uh, but you would be able to probably get it if, if necessary. Um, we'll, we'll skip through the uh, resistance. There's just different ways that uh, bacteria resistance build up, um, and they're chromosome transmitted, plasmid, uh, and act active transport pumps, and this is all in your handout. Uh, the final thing I want to close with is, is, is this spectrum of the antibiotics that we're dealing with, is that changing? Uh, has it changed significantly? And do these changes affect our clinical practice? Uh, this is a study from uh, 2000 that showed that erythromycin was ineffective, penicillin was still effective, and clindamycin was very effective for anaerobes, and uh, levofloxacin was not very effective. Uh, six years later, this was all, these are all hospitalized severe infections, so it's a little different than what we deal with. Uh, patients with abscess, there was a 21% uh, therapeutic failure with penicillin, which is high, uh, and the mean length of stay in the hospital was five days. A year later, 800 isolates uh, were tested for 13 antibiotics. Amoxicillin was still very effective. Uh, and then this just showed uh, kind of a summary of their findings. Uh, you can see that penicillin, it was kind of hit or miss. Amoxicillin was better. Uh, amoxicillin with clavulanate was even better. Uh, doxycycline was not so good. But clindamycin showed an excellent response. And then in 2012, uh, again, 68 odontogenic infections were studied, and erythromycin was worthless, amoxicillin uh, about 20% uh, resistance and low resistance with amoxicillin clavulanate. But the, the trend was that there's very much an increasing resistance with clindamycin. So our second-line drug uh, is now starting to become less and less effective. So the summary is odontogenic infections are still mixed with a variable ratio depending on culturing techniques. Uh, they're still aerobic gram-positive strep viridens and staph, anaerobic uh, peptostreptococcus, and then uh, gram-negative Prevotella, Fusobacterium, and Porphyromonas. Uh, the number of resistant organisms has doubled in the last 15 years, though, and that's, that's very concerning. Uh, clindamycin resistance is on the rise. Uh, Iconella is not susceptible to clindamycin, and Iconella can cause very severe, serious odontogenic infections. Uh, IV... Uh, amoxicillin and solvactum appear to be effective. Uh, so this would be the final slide. Empiric oral antibiotics for simple dental infections. This is my uh, uh, flow sheet. If you, outpatient infection, if they're not allergic, amoxicillin, 500 milligrams, three times a day. Clindamycin, uh, 300 milligrams. QID, if they are. Uh, penicillin, uh, uh, sensitized. Uh, and then amoxicillin, clavulanate. Uh, 
if it's more severe, and then azithromycin if uh, they're allergic to both amoxicillin and clindamycin. And then if uh, hopefully you never get to moxifloxacin, but uh, that would be the, the final choice. Uh, IV antibiotics for complex dental infections, hospitalized patients. Uh, again, get an ID consult. You, ha- you have to. Uh, Ampicillin, sulbactam would be the uh, primary uh, drug I would use. Clindamycin, IV second. Ampicillin, metronidazole third. Ceftrioxone or moxifloxacin. And then, you know, if you, at the end of your rope, you can c- combine vancomycin, levofloxacin, and metronidazole. And that, that covers just about every organism on the planet. So, okay, uh, we'll stop here. Uh, slow down. <laughs> Any questions or discussion? You all have a pretty good handle on, you know, th- how many of you, this is pretty much what you've been doing anyway. But it's good to review that and to understand why. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's your typical routine uh, you know, administration of post-operative infections? Are you prescribing antibiotics on a routine basis? No. Yeah, generally not, unless there's fascial space involvement, they're septic, they have a high temperature. Then as a follow-up, are you seeing a higher incidence of post-operative infections? Uh, well, and that's a, a good question because... Uh, you know, follow-up there is not as good as here. You know, you, you treat somebody, they go 50 miles off in the bush, you don't really know what happens. But, yeah, I would say it's it's, it's probably, you know, back at the turn of the century without antibiotics. Uh, if you did good surgical drainage and you, you removed the source of the infection, that's when you had success. If you don't do those things, you just give them an antibiotic and send them out the door, yeah, you're going to run into problems. So I can't give you a statistical, but... Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think you know. Again, for it's the same probably as as here. If if, if it's a mild infection, they're going to do well without an antibiotic. And I don't routinely prescribe antibiotics if I have a simple abscess and I remove the tooth, get good drainage. There's no reason to do an antibiotic. Although generally they'll be on antibiotics because the referring dentist has put them on antibiotics before they send them over. So. Other questions? We'll skip back. I'll just do a little plug for. Uh, you know, I used to go when I went overseas doing my mission work, uh, and I just pulled teeth for two weeks. And you know, we could do a thousand teeth in a couple of weeks and go home. And uh, we have a gentleman in the back here who developed a way to actually train people to do this. Uh, we. I had the advantage of we worked in the same area for a long time, so we would train the nurses that were in the clinics that we worked. And so when we left, the, those nurses became fairly competent at doing extraction. And I would much rather do that, uh, train them, than to do it myself. Uh, so that brings us to, you know, we, we opened this hospital. I went over there. Uh, we, we started our dental clinic last December. Uh, but we hired a dentist uh, that was trained in Guinea. Uh, he's Ghanaian. He speaks the language. He knows the people. And my job is to support him. So when I come, I don't even really want to do surgery. I want him to do the surgery. I want him to tell me what I can do to support him to make his life easier. Uh, but the main reason we're there is to spread the gospel. And uh, we're in an area that has a 99% uh, Muslim population population. Uh, 
basically no Christians when we first came. Uh, we're working with a group of missionaries from uh, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. Uh, they're African uh, people that have come to Guinea to set up this hospital, to run the hospital. They were affiliated with the hospital that was there. Uh, and they've started a school now. Uh, they have, you know, they started with 12 kids. Now they have 70 kids that are coming in that are, are basically non-Christians that are uh, learning the Bible. They're learning uh, uh, to do uh, things in the way that, uh, you know, way we wouldn't be able to. We, we're teaching them through the, the Ivory Coast missionaries uh, Christianity from the ground up. Uh, this is Pastor Omar uh, he is our, our missionary pastor. He's also the hospital chaplain. Uh, and when we went last time, we, we were able to bring uh, several hundred French Bibles. But he's had uh, an amazing amount of success in uh, just daily going around on wards. Uh, they've had a number of decisions. So, uh, you know, doing dentistry is fun. Seeing people save for eternity is even more fun. So I'll close with that. Uh, and feel free to ask any other questions. You can, I'll let you introduce yourself. Who is it? Thank you. Yeah, the same issue that we're talking about is there's no way for us to do this on a certain basis to solve the problem. In this part of the world, how many, were you recently hired in this? There's probably not a lot of access to dental care. Yeah, there's there's one government hospital that has a dentist. And that covers an area of about a million people. Yeah, yeah. So that's the issue. So we have to look at other models. And one of the models that these people talked about was training indigenous believers there on how to give a shot safely and how to extract excess teeth safely, and also how to do dental hygiene um, and to talk about prevention. So there's a ministry called Empower that has a group here. That's what they do: is they go and they train indigenous folks how to do that. And so when the short-term team comes home, services continue to go instead of going and doing dentistry to teach it. And uh, it's been very successful. Yeah, I went out with Charlie's uh, Empower Group. Uh, I, w- I was in Ghana two years ago. Yeah, and uh, I, I took my son. It was a very – we actually worked with uh, the first – I forget his name now. Francis. But, yeah, Francis. Uh, uh, but uh, he had – well, who was who uh, the guy that went to uh, Mali? Um, Zach. Zach. Zach was, I think, one of your first trainees. And yes. he actually went to Mali as a, a missionary from Ghana uh, and then was had, had to leave the country literally in the middle of the night, leaving everything behind when uh, the uh, Islamists came in and, and took over that part of Mali. But uh, – he was extremely competent. Uh, we worked with him for a week. We trained, uh, I think, nine people that time. Uh, and we don't, we, we didn't pass everybody. There were a couple people that we were not uh, sure that they were competent to be doing extractions, even simple extractions. The whole purpose of the training is kind of to let them know what they can do and what they can't do. But it's a means for pastors or church workers to get into unreached areas uh, and to provide a service. Do you so. need them with Yeah, 
that could be a challenge too, but in Ghana it's Accra, which is 11 hours away. But, um, so you want to go in areas in the south of Accra, I mean of Ghana, there's plenty of demos there, but in the north it's not the same situation. One part-time government dentist for too many people. Yeah, when I went uh, in December a year or last year, I was going to actually do training. We were gonna, we had two nurses that we had selected for me to train to, to using uh, Charlie's method, and uh, in the meantime, this uh, Ghanaian dentist fell into our lap, so we we hired him instead. But that was what our clinical model was going to be: was to have two credentialed nurses in the hospital that would be doing dental treatment uh, on a limited basis, and. Uh, it, it's in a very effective in, in rural areas. Uh, I teach every year. We have uh, CM, how many of you know CMDA has a, a medical missions conference uh, that uh, alternates between Africa and Asia, and uh, I'm the dental codeine this year. But we have missionaries coming from all over the world. Uh, we had a, another Ghanaian who had come, and he had. Uh, he was a public health worker, but he wanted to learn how to do extractions. And we, we do a class for extractions for non-dentists, primarily for physicians, so that uh, they have the experience and we, we provide them with materials and so forth. Uh, but it, 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 the need is just overwhelming in a lot of areas, especially the rural areas. If you go to Ghana, I mean, I just got an email from a, a Ghanaian dentist that's in Accra, and he has a laser. He wanted me to come over and help show him how to use a laser. And it's like, Wait a minute, you know, a year and a half ago I was out in the bush and there were no dentists anywhere, and here's this guy in a crowd that's got, you know, a, a better equipped office than I do. So, but the problem is the dentists, they get their training and then they, they go to the urban area or the rural urban areas and there's nobody in the rural areas to, to provide care. And the people in those areas don't, aren't able to access care in the big city. So, if we can provide, uh, address that need, it's going to make a big impact. All right. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Well, we'll let let you go. And uh, thanks for your attention. Uh, you're a good audience. <laughs>